preserving freedom and throwing political correctness out the window. This is the JCS Podcast. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JCS Podcast. This is a uh, little bit different than our normal uh, format. We're simply going to give our reactions to Donald Trump's address to Congress. I will say that I'm actually going to be writing a op-ed about this in the Ithaca College Chronicle, which is a bipartisan news organization that started on my campus. So please follow us on Facebook. Um, JCS podcast where I will be posting it. I've got. I'm really excited. I'll announce it on the show before we talk about it, about his speech. I was asked to do my own opt-ed column called the the Compassionate Conservative, which I'm really excited about. And my first piece is giving my reaction to Donald Trump's speech. And the first thing that I want to say in reacting to Donald Trump's speech is that if the man that I saw on what was it, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, the night of the speech, Monday night, the the man that I saw on Monday night who gave that speech, if that was the same man that I would have seen in the last 24 months, I'd say it's been about 24 months now, running to be president of the United States, without question, I would have voted for that guy. Without question, I would have voted for that guy because that was someone who was more so than anything else. Because I liked a lot of things that Trump was saying in terms of policy. What I didn't like was that he was too off the cuff and not reserved enough. What I didn't like about him was he didn't seem compassionate enough about people from both sides of the aisle. What I saw on Monday night was a man who was humble. He was reserved. He was prepared, and it was, I'm not going to go ahead and say that it was the number one greatest performance in front of Congress ever done. In fact, and I'll talk a little bit more about it, I think Barack Obama gave a better one in 2009, and I think Ronald Reagan gave a better one in 1981, and I watched them both afterwards just to compare, but that is definitely the best Donald Trump has ever been was that night. That's the best speech that he's ever given, and people on both the left and the right have said so. But now we're going to go in and talk a little bit about how we thought about it even more. Who wants to start? Um, I can jump in right now. Now, before I go into this, I'm just going to tell you right now, Caleb, and I'm pretty sure I've said this before to you. I hated Trump. I could not stand the man for over a year. I was always the first one in class to talk about the latest bull crap with Donald Trump. But he did get elected. He won fair and square. He is our president. Although I was kind of disappointed about it. The night before the inauguration, I was sitting in this very room actually talking to Skyler. And I told him exactly what I'm telling you right now. I can't stand the man based on everything else that he's done. But I haven't given him a chance in office yet. And I'm trying to stay very open-minded. And with that in mind... I honestly think this is his best speech so far, by what I've seen. I read this front to back most of today, and I can honestly say this is probably his best speech from him so far. And I was very surprised about it, I'll be honest. But What did you think, John? Yeah, I thought that Donald Trump's speech, this was definitely, like you said, the most humble that he has appeared I mean, when you compare the speech last night to a, to a lot of his presidential campaign, uh, different different guy, different mm, appearance. Absolutely. Um, you had insults and really really wild actions of the Donald Trump during the campaign, and last night very humble, um, very articulate with his wording, and so I very much thought the speech was a great speech. Now, I may not agree with every single thing that he may have mentioned. Right. Um, but I, I did like a lot of it. There were, there were um, you know, there were a few major things that were mentioned that I, that I am down with, or at least was going in the direction in which I'd like to see this country go. So, yeah, great speech. Mm-hmm. Now, there was one thing that kind of 
turned the wheels in my head a little bit. Stood out to me compared to some other things. And I just want to know, like, what you guys thought about it, because I was thinking some things about it. So I'm going to read you this little piece from the beginning of his speech. Then, in 2016, the earth shifted beneath our feet. The rebellion started as a quiet protest, spoken by families of all colors and creeds. Family who just wanted a fair shot for their children, and a fair hearing for their concerns. But then the quiet voices became a loud chorus, as thousands of citizens now spoke out together from cities small and large all across the country. Finally, the chorus became an earthquake, and the people turned out by the tens of millions, and they were all united by one very simple but crucial demand, that America must put its own citizens first. Because only then we can truly, big shocker right here, guys, make America great again. Now, this is a little less important compared to some of the other things that are in this speech. Everything else, I was like, okay, yeah, that's a general issue of the United States. But I got this vibe that he was kind of bragging about winning the election. Maybe I'm just thinking too far He's, into he, it. No, he but certainly was. But I want to know your opinion on it. He certainly was. He continues to, mm-hmm. and in terms of the facts, he continues to, um, I will I will admit with to you with that. I will agree with you to that. Okay. He continues to exaggerate the, the drastic scale of his win. I mean, in his very first press conference, he said he had the largest scale win since Ronald Reagan, which is absolutely not true. No. He won like <laughs> 309 electoral votes. Barack Obama got more than that in both 2008 and 2012. And he's like, oh, well, I was only talking Republican. George W. Bush Sr. got almost as much as Ronald Reagan was. I'll pull up the numbers right here. All right. Um, electoral. Well, I'm glad to know I wasn't the only one thinking that. I was like, maybe it's just because I don't like the guy, but I don't know. But I'm glad you guys are also thinking the same thing. Yeah, I, yeah, I would agree with that because, like Caleb said, I mean, r- immediately after winning the election, he was already bragging about, oh, I, I'm, this is the most amazing. <laughs> right event You've ever. You've been blessed is, with my presence. <laughs> I've done the best job out of anyone else. No, he's he's absolutely wrong. He just he, he's full of himself, and he always has been full of himself. There's no denying the fact mm-hmm. that he's full of himself. This In 1988, lo- George W. Bush got uh, George Bush Senior got 426 electoral votes against Michael Dukakis. Pretty much a landslide. You want to talk about mandate? That's a mandate. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump was very close. You wonder how close it was. If Donald Trump had lost Pennsylvania during the night of the election not talking about when the electors actually went into vote in in, in December if he didn't win Pennsylvania that night because he won 279 that night yep. if he didn't win Pennsylvania neither one of them would have won it would have it would, it would they really would have determined what the electorals vote, electorates voted in December could have gone to Congress who knows 269 269 not, not likely but he certainly would have not been clarified the definite end all of all winner if he just lost one state one major state so it was close. close it, it was is close. that is a close election yeah. it's certainly not the closest that this country has ever had but it's not nearly as much of a sweep as he wants people to think it was. And in terms of him saying people poured in by the millions, his base did. But people actually poured in by the millions to stay home. 46% of the country did not vote. Exactly. 49.6%. Is it 49.6%? I remember it off the top of my head because it made me so angry because somebody snapped at me about voting for Gary Johnson. I'm like, did you vote? They're like, no. And I'm like, then why do you have the right to give me attitude about voting third party right because you're the person who's the bigger part of the problem than us in fact i'll tell you right now if gary johnson wasn't in the race just as what usually happens with libertarian votes it's very it's very reasonable to say that donald trump would have gotten even more votes because there are people who voted for johnson who number two would have been a lot of fiscal conservatives that's right didn't want to vote for trump um because of personal probably Mm -hmm. because of personal views on him, but were really like Gary Johnson, so they wanted or to come even, over and vote for him. Or even some um, social conservatives that might not have liked the 
temperament of Donald Trump, who then voted for Gary Johnson because he, he seems more reserved in comparison of the two of them. Mm-hmm. They would have voted for Trump because of his, his initiative to put America first, his initiative to right. help out the pro- people in our nation before other nations. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I'm actually glad that you mentioned that because I actually have a quote from last night in the text where um, – and I, and I like that Donald Trump mentioned this last night. I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on it. So he said last night, America has spent approximately $6 trillion in the Middle East. All this while our infrastructure at home is crumbling. With this $6 trillion, we could have rebuilt our country twice, and maybe even three times if we had people who had the ability to negotiate. And then he said, to launch our nation national rebuilding, I will be asking Congress to approve legislation that produces a $1 trillion investment in the infrastructure of the United States, financed through both public and private capital, creating millions of new jobs. Now, we can all discuss what the government should and should not do to, to its own citizens, but... The concept of putting people in our own society first and dealing with our own problems first before we talk about spending millions and billions and trillions of dollars over in other countries, I like that concept. We need to help ourselves before we try to help other people. I like that concept and some of the other concepts that he brought in the aspect of helping ourselves was, for example, he talked about um, the steel mill. He mm-hmm. said that company oil companies will now be making their pipes using American produced steel. Mm-hmm. That was something that he brought up. He brought up actually that's one of my topics too, right here. Okay, you want to? Well, then I'll just let you lead into it. Oh well, all right. Um, so I actually do have the quote right here since we're speaking of it. We have cleared the way for the construction of the Keystone and Dakota Access pipelines, thereby creating tens of thousands of jobs. I've issued a new directive that the New American pipelines will be made with American steel. Um, now, I, he kind of steered towards the American steel, but I've, I'm sure a lot of people are still pretty upset that they're even doing the Dakota Access Pipelines in general. That is one um, of the things I that wanted, he's gotten a lot of kickback for. Yes, I wanted to get your opinion on that, too, because I'm not... That's one of the things I'm not very happy about, mm-hmm. because they are bulldozing over burial grounds. I can understand that. I'm very divided on that issue um, mm-hmm. because I've heard both sides of the argument uh, in terms of them bur- burying over burial grounds and at the same time the job creation. So I've heard both sides and I've also looked at a little bit more, but not a whole lot. Maybe, John, do you have something specific that you want to say about the Dakota Access Pipeline? I'm going to say the Dakota Access Pipeline. I've talked to people that I know that are very for it, and mm-hmm. they've given valid reasons. I've, talk and I've talked to people that are very against it that have given valid reasons. I, I will admit, mm-hmm. um, I will plead ignorance here. If that's that's the saying, isn't it? That is. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to just make a joke. <laughs> I, I will say that I don't have a strong enough opinion to mm-hmm. tell you either way whether or not I'm... And I, I feel I feel the exact same way. My opinion is not as strong on it, but if the viewers are like, oh my God, don't they need to know these things? I'll do one thing for you. First off, I'm going to say to the viewers listening at home, it's not our job to tell you how to think, but it's our job to provide, um, provide the facts and let you guys think for yourself. So exactly. on this particular topic, what we'll do is we'll look into some articles from both sides of the aisle, provide them into the description of this podcast and let you guys be the decider of where you stand on this particular issue but as you can tell from the three of us that happen to be here today none of us have a really strong opinion on that i that's all i can really say about the dakota access pipeline but i do want to turn subjects here for a second and say one of the things i really liked about it and i've heard other pundits on tv talk about this speech was very unifying this should have been his inauguration speech it really should have. Mm-hmm. This is a much better speech. It's it's not. It's a lot less dark. It's a lot more hopeful. Everything, the, every agenda person that he tried to br- address, he brought someone in who really knew. I loved this charter school example. He brought in this girl who failed three times or two times third grade, was in a very bad neighborhood, poverty struck in, family was struggling, and... Her family um, asked for a grant for her to be put into an alternative school, and not only did that help her get through, I think it was a charter school, it was either charter school or private school. Something along those lines, yeah. She got accepted into that, 
And she not only became the first in her family to graduate high school, but she's now working on her master's degree. See, this is, it's amazing. And then he went in and we're going to talk more about this specific case in an instant. He talked about why we need to deregulate the FDA. And he brought a case of a person who her life was only saved because her father had the means of creating a business that would save her life. Mm -hmm. But if she was born in a family where they didn't have that money, the FDA didn't regulate a drug in time that would have saved her life. So the only reason why she's alive is because her family had the economic means to fight that hard, where most families in this country don't have that kind of money to invest to find a solution to her health problem. Perfect. And then when he talked about, um, well, of course, the military aspect, we're going to talk about that in a second, but constantly throughout the night when he brought up an issue he brought an example of someone who who meets the the issue because a lot of people i know it's a political tactic but it can work if it's done right Mm -hmm. where you bring a face to the issue sometimes when it works wrong is when you're trying like you're pierce morgan and you're on cnn and you're trying to say the reasons why gun control is right, and then you bring in the mother of someone who lost their child, and she's like, well, I lost my child because of gun violence. Right. Well, that doesn't happen across the board. Mm-hmm. And the study, and in fact, the studies show that most people die of, of pistols and not AK-47s, but I'm getting, right. or, or machine guns or whatever you want to call them, um, I'm digressing here. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is that he did it effectively. And this is one of the reasons why people elected him is because I can't tell you how many people I said, well, he's a businessman. He's he's made a lot of connections over his life. And there's one thing he's talented at. It's getting in touch with the right people. And that's what he did at this speech. He got in touch with the right people. He made the right conversations. And every single person that he put up there, whether it be a ploy, a talking point, whatever you want to call it, it was highly convincing. Yeah. And it was it was very impressive. And like yeah. I said, if that was the man that I knew that was going to be there, would have voted for him. Definitely. And the other thing I want to say is that it was definitely unifying. Yeah. Um, he oftentimes oftentimes he alluded to, you know, Republican presidents. He revo- referred to Abraham Lincoln at one point. I think he referred to Eisenhower's um, um public works program at another point but he constantly referred to us i just want to read the ending of it which i listened to it and i'm like as a writer i said this is literary genius whoever wrote that speech they need to stay out in the white house for the next eight years you don't think trump wrote it no no, I don't think Trump wrote <laughs> Good, it. I'm not the only that's, one. That's, a, that's an actual job. Barack Obama didn't write his speeches. George Bush didn't write his speeches. That's a job. Writing speeches. And that's a job that you can get trained for. George Washington University in Washington, D.C. has an amazing job, amazing program for people who their job is to write speeches for political pundits. That's an actual career that you can do. It's just writing speeches for the pundits. That's a career. So at the end, he says... On our 100th anniversary, in 1876, citizens, so our, already unifying, from across our nation, came to Philadelphia to celebrate America's centennial. At that celebration, the country's builders and artists, inventors showed off their creations. Alexander Graham Bell displayed his telephone for the first time. Remington unveiled the first typewriter. An early attempt was made at electric light. Thomas Edison showed an automatic telegraph and an electric pen. Imagine the wonders of our country could know in its America's 250th year. Think of the marvels we can achieve if we simply set free the dreams of our people. Cures to illness that have always been plagued, uh, that have always plagued us are not too much hope. American footprints on distant worlds are not too big a dream. Millions lifted from welfare to work is not too much to expect. And streets where mothers are safe from fear, schools where children can, can learn in peace, and jobs where Americans prosper and grow are not too much to ask. When we have all of this, we will have made America greater than ever before. For all Americans, this is our vision. 
this is our mission. But we can only get there when we are one people with one destiny. We all bleed the same blood. We all salute the same flag. And we are all made by the same God. And he continues to say more about that. But I really like that part. It was very unifying. The unity of us as a people. And really honing in on the 250th anniversary is coming up real soon. And the work that we do together as a country can determine whether um, it's been a great 250 years or it's a 250 years that is solely coming to an end. Mm. Right. So I really like that part. But what else did you want to say, John? Well, I want to point out that uh, uh, part of the when they talked about um, the Obamacare replacement mm-hmm. that really jumped out at me was when at near the end of that uh, conversation where he said the time has come to give the Americans the freedom to purchase health insurance across state lines, creating a truly national a truly competitive national marketplace that will bring costs way down and provide far better care. I really like that idea of eliminating the state lines, allowing for actual capitalism to ensue and bringing costs way down, quality up. Um, I'm completely in favor of that. And I know that I believe during his campaign, I remembered hearing him mention uh, that Obama was not in favor Right. Very adamantly against getting rid of the state lines. Right. And this is one thing that I don't understand with some people is that, you know, you claim that you want people to to have these 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 rights, this health care, education, that all these things are human rights. But when someone says, okay, why don't we give the people the people more options within those rights, then whether it be school choice, allowing parents to uh, saying to the federal government that you do not have the right to overstep the, the boundaries of parental guidance. If a parent wants their kid to go to a charter school, a private school, a public school, a religious school or home school, that's the choice of the parent. If a patient wants to get their health insurance from their state or where there are only one option or go to another state where there are many options, why would you want to overstep that boundary? I yeah. mean, that doesn't that sound like a miracle to you? You're talking about how it's a free, it's a right of the people, and someone says, okay, well, then let's give them more options within that right. And you're like, no, that's terrible. That right. doesn't make any sense. No. So I love free market capitalism. Mm-hmm. I love what he said, not just when it comes to state boundaries, what he said about free, what he said, not about free education, sorry, what he said about free educational options. Yeah. And by that, I mean more choices, more freedom, more liberty. I love that, what he had to say. I mean, he says right here, secondly, we should help Americans purchase their own coverage through the use of tax credits and expanded health savings accounts. But it must be the plan that they want, not the plan forced on them by the government. Exactly. Exactly. Which is one of the reasons why I say we're much more compassionate. I mean, what's more compassionate? Allowing an individual to choose whether or not they want health care. And if they do, giving them choice of what health care plan that they choose or saying to the or putting a metaphorical gun up to the the head of a citizen and saying you must have this health care or else. And and the thing is, too, if you didn't purchase the health care, you were penalized. So if you didn't have the money to afford buying the insurance, you were penalized. And some people thought. A lot of I've I've seen in numerous interviews and and polling where people, um, of course we could probably even bring up if someone would want to, but uh, where they thought it was cheaper to just pay the penalty. It was rather than buying the insurance. It was cheaper, and a perfect example would be when Bernie Sanders told that business owner that you ought to be giving them all health insurance. Oh, I remember this. It was a hairdresser, mm-hmm. and she's like, "Well, how am I supposed to do that?" He goes, "Well, you should be giving it to them anyway." Exactly. And she can't do that because in order for her to do that, she has to make some drastic changes financially. Mm -hmm. And part of that financial change is hiring less people because she can't afford. She's a small business owner. I think it was 40 employees, 50 employees. She She can have it off. Yep. She can only have up to 50 employees. If mm-hmm. she had more than that, she'd have to give them insurance. Mm-hmm. And right. she didn't have the money to do that. But so. did anybody else hear the part where she didn't even have health insurance because she couldn't afford it? Exactly. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. She owned more than one salon, and she couldn't even afford her health insurance. And you know she's working really long hours in order to keep both businesses sustainable, which, without rest, you you put yourself susceptible up to more health-related illnesses. Absolutely. So, So... I definitely feel for that small business owner and I definitely feel for anybody who's suffering because they have to add this or say you're in poverty and have that much money. You can barely afford to pay your bills or not even poverty, but middle class. And now they're saying, okay, let's add an extra fee onto you. How does that help people? Well, for a specific example, she's a hairdresser. She's going to, she did seem a little like early 40s mm-hmm. but she's gonna get arthritis very early if she doesn't already have problems now it's gonna get pretty bad exactly my mom was a hairdresser when she was in high school she went to boasties and everything and i think she stopped about in her mid-20s and she became a bartender she had arthritis when she was in her 30s and she mm-hmm. struggles with it now and she's almost 50 years old so she's had it for years and she takes so many medications for it, and she has to do this on the table all the time. I'm hitting my fingers on the table for those of you at home so she can get feelings back. But we have to have insurance in order for her to get the care that she needs, and it's really expensive. It's like, how is she supposed to do that if she can't even buy her own health insurance? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So these are things that, in terms of policy, in terms of him, him being compassionate, in terms of him being understanding, I really like those aspects of it. Now, the biggest loser of the night mm-hmm. were the Democrats. Yeah. The reason why the Democrats oh, were the boy, biggest here we loser. Go. <laughs> this is exactly why. This is the reason why the, the Democrats were the biggest loser of the night. If you don't like Trump, you have to like him. No, I don't you like have him. the the beautiful thing about you being in the House of Representatives is you have the right to vote no. You have the right to not vote for the things that he wants to put in there. You have the right to oppose those things. And first off, meet with your constituents. That's another conversation. But you have the right to do that. Okay? Just as the Republicans did to Barack Obama when he was in office, I will say that I think that they they took it a little too far with the amount of times that they blockaded his legislation. They didn't even meet with his Supreme Court nominee. They didn't even meet with the guy. So you can do it by your means. But you know what the one thing that the Republicans did do? When they were in the room with Barack Obama, whether he was giving a State of the Union, he was giving a speech in front of Congress, whatever he was, or giving an address after a national tragedy, which he had to do on several occasions during his time in office, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. They gave him the respect that he deserves as being president of the United States. They stood up. They clapped. They gave him respect. I did not see that from both the Democrats, and I didn't even see it from the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is supposed to be an unbiased judiciary. I mean, it says right there in the Constitution that they're supposed to be unbiased. And I'll get the exact wording out in a second. But it disgusted me. It disgusted me, that line of disrespect. And you might say, oh, well, they didn't do that for Obama. Actually, they did. I rewatched his 2009 address. And when he was referring to affordable health care for all, they stood up and they clapped. They may not have liked it, but they did it out of respect for the fact that he was elected by the country. And he is addressing his things that he thinks will be best for the future of this country, just as Donald Trump did. And more so than anything else, you don't want to stand for, for Trump. Again, I'm not going to like you for it, but you have the constitutional right to not stand. You yeah. have the right to free speech, just right. as much as I do. If you don't like him and you want to do that as a, as a nonviolent protest to him, fine. But don't you dare take your anger out on the u.s military which is exactly what they did yes when ryan owens his wife when he was being honored at that speech and they gave a two-minute applause there were some the supreme court stood up there were some democrats that stood up but there were some who not only took the initiative to sit down But they sat down with their hands on their butts as a further sign of disrespect. These are people who their job is to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. They have to put an oath to it to fight for your Constitution. They have to put their hand on the Constitution, correct? Mm -hmm. When they're swearing in, the Constitution of the Bible. I believe it's the Constitution. They have to put their hand on. They're fighting for your rights, and you're not going to give them that kind of respect. Now, what? whether you agree with the... with Trump or not. Let me give you the the historical background of what happened to Ryan Owens. There was a raid on the war on terror in an effort by the United States military to gain enemy intel 
in Yemen. And Ryan was a part of this raid. And it was successful in the sense that they came back, they had hard drives, they had laptops, they had computers, they had cell phones, they had information from the in- enemy, that uh, from um, ISIS or whichever terror organization it was, that we would not have had without the without the um, without this mission. Now, although it was um, set in place and commanded before Trump became the commander in chief, it occurred under his watch. He is the commander-in-chief of the military. And what he did at that speech is something that you have not seen before. I have never seen before, and I'm sure you have never seen before. I have never seen before. He took time out of his speech to honor this man who gave his life for every American listening, for every person listening. He gave his life in that battle. He chose to. We don't have, we don't have a, um, uh, what is it called? It's not a, we don't have a draft. We don't mm-hmm. have a draft. Um, He wasn't forced to be in the military. He chose to be in the military. He chose to fight for our country. And they uh, refused to stand for his his sacrifice. And I'm absolutely disgusted by that. And I'm absolutely proud of President Trump, whether it was for a political ploy or if it was for his honest, which I think it might have been because he's been talking about it for years, his honest caring for the military. That took... um, it showed character for me. That is always that. Like I told you earlier, I was never a big fan of Trump, but that was one thing I did respect him on. Now, absolutely. Before I continue with this, I'm not saying that you were wrong with this, John, but I'm just going to tell you this story. Now, I wasn't really um, very attentive to politics when I was in high school, but like starting last summer when everything was getting big about the election, I was like, maybe I should be more aware of what's going on. I'm going to be voting for the first time this this fall, so. This was this um, address to Congress was the first one I've ever really seen and sat down and paid attention to. Now, as we were watching this in the very beginning, I noticed that the other half of the room was not standing up. And I actually at one point was like sitting with John. I stood up every five seconds mimicking Mike Pence and um, Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan. 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 Yep, that's who he is. I almost said Ron Paul, but that's not who he is. But, um, they stood up every like five seconds. I was mimicking and John's like, all right, chill. So then I was noticing, I'm like, well, the other half of the room's not standing up. And John goes, well, that's the Democrats. They do that time to time with a, whenever it's the opposite group. And I'd, have, I said, I'd have to look back and see if they did that to W. Good old W. Bush. Yeah, I thought, I swore, I thought I remember when Obama spoke that Republicans wouldn't stand. I'm sure there was plenty of times where that happened. I'm sure there were plenty of times where that happened. But we're talking about this specific case case Mm -hmm. of the very first address to a joint session of Congress. Very crucial, very critical, because this is the moment where they are laying out specific things that they wish to enact within their four years Mm -hmm. as president. I mean, this is when Ronald Reagan... um, talked about increasing, I think he talked about another time later on, even more in detail, but talked about increasing spending for the military. This is where Barack Obama talked about health, uh, more health care options. He talked about the four things that he wishes to spend investments on. Um, we're going to watch a couple of his things right now, um, actually, of what he said and react to that, because I think one of the best ways for us to talk about Trump's speech is to talk about how someone else did it. So I've got a couple of clips. We're going to put it in here, too. We're going to watch it first, and then we're going to talk about it. So see you in a second. Now, I understand that when the last administration asked this Congress to provide assistance for struggling banks, Democrats and Republicans alike, were infuriated by the mismanagement and the results that followed. So were the American taxpayers. So was I. So I know how unpopular it is to be seen as helping banks right now, especially when everyone is suffering in part from their bad decisions. I promise you, I get it. But I also know that in a time of crisis, we cannot afford to govern out of anger or yield to the politics of the moment. My job. Our job is to solve the problem. Our job is to govern with a sense of responsibility. I will not not spend a single penny for the purpose of rewarding a single Wall Street executive, but I will do whatever it takes to help the small business that can't pay its workers or the family that has saved and still can't get a mortgage. That's what this is about. 
It's not about helping banks, it's about helping people. It's not about helping banks. It's about helping people. Because when credit is available again, that young family can finally buy a new home. But to truly transform our economy, to protect our security and save our planet from the ravages of climate change, we need to ultimately make clean, renewable energy the profitable kind of energy. So I ask this Congress to send me legislation that places a market-based cap on carbon pollution and drives the production of more renewable energy in America. That's what we need. Okay, so you just heard two separate clips from President Obama's address to Congress back in 2000, uh, February 2009, similar situation as Donald Trump's. And the reason why I played those specific two clips are for separate reasons. The first one is an instance of Barack Obama pitching an idea that is not very popular in a positive way, which this speech is all about pitching your ideas for what is best for the country over the next four years. Whether you like his positions or not, that's what it's for, okay? And Trump did a very good job at doing that, as Obama did a very good job at doing that. I mean, Trevor Noah criticized Donald Trump because he's like, oh, well, as long as you put on a nice suit and tie, people will just cheer and follow along with what you have to say like sheep. I'm, I'm um, being frank here. That's not exactly what he said, but that's essentially what he said. Don't they kind of do that on his show, though? Oh, right. Right. I mean, I mean, so I'm just saying (laughs) exactly. You're exactly right. So, I mean, essentially, but my thing is that Trevor Noah obviously doesn't understand the historical context of an address to Congress. You're bringing your ideas into the most presentable fashion possible. Mm -hmm. That's what your job is to do. And what we just heard President Barack Obama do was address to Congress the a very unpopular position on people on both sides of the aisle deregulating and bailing out Wall Street and the big banks it's not about banks it's about people by supporting banks i mean he didn't really say by supporting banks but unpopular position but he tried to make it sound as applaudable as possible donald trump okay presenting about immigration problem crimes well he brought a victim of a family who lost their child remember that part of the the speech he like brought a family who either lost their child or they were a victim of someone who had a criminal conviction came over the border and committed a crime against this family yes okay he said that he brought in the the voice program i can't remember exactly what it stands for but it's to start a it's a committee to start up to take a look at crimes that are being committed in this country by illegal immigrants from all over the world Okay, so you may not agree with those positions, but he presented them in a very fashionable way, which is what his job was to do. So, again, I say it's a successful speech. You don't agree with what he had to say. You don't agree with what he had to say. But in terms of the speech, if you're just saying that it's a bad speech, then therefore you obviously have your own bias. He Um, did what he was supposed to do. He did what he was supposed to do. So that's the first clip. The second clip that I said that I brought in was when Obama mentioned a market-based solution. And the reason why I put in there is because the other thing he's supposed to do is try and unify. And Obama was more subtle with his unification in his speech. He, he Instead of saying directly that I want to help work with Republicans or this with Republicans or that with Republicans, he would slip in things that Republicans would like. At the beginning of his speech, he talked about something about cutting programs, especially in education that we no longer need and are failing, and increasing parts that are needed to help people function in a society, which is things that conservatives can agree with, cutting, slashing, trimming government. And in this aspect, at retrospect, when he's talking about environmental uh, protection, he knows a lot of people are not very environmentalist, so he says um, free market-based solution. So that's what he talked about. Hannah, did you have any other notes that you wanted to say? Um, not right now. I'll let you know when I have uh, Let's input. talk <laughs> about the FDA, John. I know you're very sure. passionate about that. Well, we I'll could... let you say your part, unless you had something else to say about this. Well, we could talk about the FDA thing, but there was a specific issue that Trump kind of highlighted in his speech, um, where he talked about 
He said, I have, I have further ordered that the Departments of Homeland Security and Justice, along with the Department of State and the Director of National Intelligence, to coordinate an aggressive strategy to dismantle the criminal cartels that have spread across our nation. We will stop the drugs from pouring into our country and poisoning our youth, and we will expand treatment for those who have become so badly addicted. Now, yes. my thing is this. The part where he mentions, and we will expand treatment for those who have become so badly addicted, I 100% agree with. But I'm curious to see what exactly, what kind of treatment and what ways they plan to implement that policy. Mm -hmm. How are they going to expand treatment? That's what I want to know. Another thing is that what worries me is that, that the kind of way that he's addressing the drug issue it sounds like a very socially conservative way of going about it. Mm -hmm. Now, because his attorney general, for example, Jeff Sessions, very socially conservative, so socially conservative, he's even against the legalization of marijuana. He even said himself, good people don't smoke marijuana. So, he went even further to say that he liked the KKK until he learned that they smoke marijuana because good people don't smoke marijuana. jeez. Yeah, oh, so. I don't even know that quote. So. Yeah. Um, and I watched actually, I watched actually the other day where Jeff Sessions was talking about oh, drug policy and he was saying things like, well, maybe science will prove me wrong. He seemed very uneducated on the topic. I'm not surprised. But Sessions? Uh, yeah. Oh, I'm not surprised. Um, and he said, but maybe science will prove me wrong, but I don't, th uh, and states, yeah, they're legalizing it, something along the lines of that. And I, I, I think we ought to not start legalizing a drug like marijuana this is what concerns me is that they talk about wanting to help drug addicts mm -hmm. but at the same time the drug dealers that they may a target that they may target through their aggressive strategies may also be american citizens who are going through a bad time who are also drug addicts that happen to sell drugs on the side in order to fuel their addiction so this is what worries me when they talk about going after people and demonizing a group of people in its entirety are there drug dealers that are bad people absolutely but there are also drug dealers in small communities that are good people that have a problem so we have to we have i don't think their generalization of this entire situation is good i don't think that going after and having an entire policy based on violence is a good idea now i know i will be fair and they did mention expanding treatment but i i i want to wait and see what kind of treatment we're talking about here and how efficient is that treatment going to be? But I am very concerned about how they're going to go about the drug policy mixed. In. And I know that in his immigration policy is a factor in that from keeping drugs from coming in by building his wall. But I'm, I'm just curious to see how they go about it. I'm very skeptical how they're going to go about that. Right. Um, I know we're jumping all around here because there's yeah. a lot that he that he did address. I think yeah. the mo moment there's that a lot to go over. <laughs> there is a lot to go over. The moment that surprised me the most was when he was talking about repealing or replace Obamacare. He said that he wants to keep the provision of pre-existing conditions. Mm -hmm. Now I don't know how you guys feel about that part of the pre-existing conditions. Um, there are a, a mo I'm mostly for it, but I can see why people are against it. What I'm for it is because that's the part that people like the most was the pre-existing conditions. And there's a lot of right. Republicans in the House and the Senate and a lot of Republicans in media who want to get rid of it. And to hear him, and I never heard him say before, that he wants to actually keep that part, that really caught my interest. That's very, um, I think that he, they can get some bipartisan support on that. And I yeah. think that a lot of the people who are freaking out about losing their health care, understandably the 250,000 Americans who will be without health care if Obamacare is just repealed without a replacement plan, I think that they can rest a little bit more at ease knowing that the president of the United States does side them with the pre-existing conditions. And the other part that was popular was keeping staying on your parents' plan until you're 27. He hasn't said anything about that. Mm -hmm. But if he does keep his promise with the pre-existing conditions, I think a lot of people will be happy with it. Now, for you specifically, what, what do you think would be the pros to keeping the pre-existing conditions policy? And what do you think the cons are to pre-existing conditions policy? The pros of the pre-existing conditions policy is that, one, a lot of the people who would have lost their health care if they got rid of it will still be able to keep their health care. The cons of it is, here's the thing, okay? Insurance is meant to be to give you, well, insurance that you can be insured that in a situation where something were to happen, you can be protected. Right. Okay? So, for example, I get car insurance. and Well, that's good. You're supposed to have that. Well, I do. But I'm saying, <laughs> I'm saying, okay, for example, I 
say I purchase car insurance, right? Mm -hmm. My reason for purchasing it is not just because it's mandated, which I mean, they say the same thing about healthcare. It shouldn't be mandated, but it's another conversation. I bought it. And even if it wasn't mandated, I would still buy it because I need it in case, for example, someone hits me or I hit a deer, which is very easy to happen in this area. Yeah. Something happens. I am now insured that I don't have to struggle to co- to pay for the cost of the damage. Okay. A pre-existing condition clause in car insurance, nobody would ever, if you ask for pre-existing condition in car insurance and say on a used car, nobody's going to ever want to <laughs> agree to that because that means that they have to pay for damage that came to the car before you even came to them. Nobody's going to want to do that. For example, same thing with health insurance. You go to a health, you go to a list of health insurers and they say, I want you to pay for the health problems that I already have. Wait a minute. That's, that's not what we're here for. And so that's what a lot of, in, in, that's what my con is that you're going to turn away a lot of possible insurance companies. Now you could say, market-based solution, there could be a company out there that specifically deals, specializes, specialization is another beautiful thing about free market capitalism. It's a company that could specialize in just giving health insurance for people with pre-existing conditions. Right. That is something that could happen. That is something that I foresee happening. But the people who are for um, the pre-existing conditions clause will say, well, I cannot afford to wait until that company starts up. So that's why I'm in the middle on that case. Yeah, I'm more very so. Torn on that too. I'm very torn on that personally. But in terms of pol- in terms of the best possible solution to this problem, I say that although my ideology and my philosophy says that you will eventually be taken care of, my understanding of the way that the world works is that an immediate re- repeal and replace without that pre-existing conditions will put those hundreds of thousands of people in their lives, their health, their their finances in jeopardy immediately. If we're going to do it, we should have a transitional period. Exactly. Yeah. I want to throw a little bit of my input in. I know um, with, with this kind of stuff, I try not to throw in like personal examples, but I do think the the pre-existing, mm-hmm. um, it, I think it should be a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandfather retired in January of 2014 mm-hmm. or December of 2013. It was one of the two. But um, not even a month or two months later, he suddenly got very sick. And he went to the hospital and nobody knew why. And then they, then they f- suddenly found out he had like severe lung cancer and he ended up dying. Mm-hmm. Um so they had no idea. He didn't. He had no time to reapply for his insurance because his insurance was um, supplied through his job. Mm-hmm. So my aunt was trying to get the ball rolling on some insurance while he was still sick in the hospital, while he was still alive. But he actually did end up passing away, not even a week in the hospital. Yes. Yeah, so exactly, and and I think that this is an instance where personal stories are okay. You know, when it comes to health insurance, yeah, I think when it comes to health insurance, because people need to put a face to the issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, people need to understand that these are actual lives we're talking about. When we're talking about a lot of financial issues between my father and um, his other siblings, which um, I wasn't, I'm not sure if they would have kept kept mm-hmm. it, but it did result in them selling his house mm-hmm. where all three of them grew up. Mm-hmm. I think the examples where personal stories are not okay, if we're having a discussion about something, they're great. This is my view. If we're talking about statistics, we're talking about the numbers, the pure, just numbers on any issue, whatever the mm-hmm. issue may be, your life doesn't, your, I mean, your personal story, nobody wants to hear your personal story. Exactly. For example, Ann Coulter, um, and I hate using her as a reference because she's very controversial, <laughs> but in this is one case where I can actually stand by Ann Coulter. She was talking about why the research and all the studies show that a secular family with a husband and a wife, um, the child is more likely to become a hardworking, um, decent civilian in our society than if they grew up with a single mother. I grew up with a single mother and I'm doing just fine. Okay. I'm saying that for the record, but that's not an argument. That's not it's an anecdotal argument. evidence. That's, it's anecdotal evidence. Okay. Mm-hmm. If she's saying that the studies show that this results in more um, um, hardworking and moral civilians than if you were grew up with than the instance of growing up with a single mother. She's not saying that all the single mothers in the audience are bad people. 
And so every single single mother who then stood up and said, well, I'm a good parent. Well, I'm a good parent. I'm I'm a good parent. Exactly. (laughs) That is a poor, that is a poor counter argument to her claims. And I love the way that she came back and she said, well, I mean, when they said, I'm a good mother, she said back, well, every now and then Barry Bonds struck out or Derek Jeter strikes out every now and then. But if you look at the pure numbers of his of his performance on the on the field as a base professional baseball player, he hits home runs more often than he doesn't or not home runs. He 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 hits the ball more often than he strikes out. Right. And that's the good. Yeah, because it's like saying uh, if you eat hostess cupcakes, you'll get. Let's say you get diabetes, and for some Perfect. reason there was some extreme. Let's say there's some some mm-hmm. statistical. If you eat if you eat Hostess cupcakes at least forty days in a year, ninety nine percent of people that have done that mm-hmm. have de- get developed diabetes. Okay, so someone could say, "Well, I eat Hostess cupcakes uh, forty days in a year, and I don't have diabetes, and I'm not at risk." But that's great for them. But, that but that's anecdotal evidence. Exactly. They, yeah, they could be part of the one percent. The one percent. They could right. be part of the one percent that are not affected. But the other ninety nine percent, the vast majority of the statistic, are affected. So the more than likely chance is, if you do this action, this is the result that's going to be produced. Exactly. And you see the same thing with I have relatives who they smoke cigarettes and you, you see the commercials that happen and they're like, well, I smoke cigarettes and I never got that cancer. It's the same thing. It's Well, that's not an argument. That's just good I, luck. Exactly. Um, both of my biological grandfathers died of lung cancer, but my step-grandfather, who I've known all of my life, has lived longer than both of them have and he's older than both of them, He's never had lung cancer. And all three of them smoked. Yes, all three of them smoked. You see what I mean? Like, this is not an argument. This is just, oh, great. <laughs> like, yeah. great for you. So there are instances when we're having a discussion, personal um, stories are perfect. When we're talking about statistics, doesn't really... They don't matter. They don't matter. Facts don't, don't care about your feelings. Yes, high five. <laughs> well, this this might be a little different. My... But like I said, my two biological grandfathers did smoke. They both had lung cancer, and they mm-hmm. did unfortunately pass away. My step grandfather, on the other hand, did not get lung cancer. He's never had any kind of cancer, as far as I know. But I don't know all of the details because I kind of got a little squeamish and a little upset about it. Um, this was last Christmas, um, so 2015. He um, he got very sick as well, but I don't remember exactly what it was. He actually had some kind of multiple clots in his legs, and it ended up that it was so bad they actually had to amputate his left leg mm-hmm. due to his heart not working properly. So that is a result of the the smoking, but... It, it just it, affected it, him in a different way. It, yes, and it affected him in a very different way. Okay. So going back to Trump's speech, I know we kind of got sidetracked a little bit there in the audience, but I think it was, I think think it was a, it it was still a healthy discussion. There's really just two things left that I want to talk about. One being the FDA portion of it, which was really well done. And I know John really liked it too. Mm -hmm. And it's funny that he said that. Um, we'll, we'll just talk about it now. When he talked, when he gave the example of that girl and he was, he started talking about the FDA. I immediately thought a conversation that you had with me, <laughs> where you had with me, and I, I was like, is he going to say it? Is he going to say it? And then when he talked about how we need to cut regulations to the FDA so that drugs can be approved more swiftly to help out Americans, I instantly thought about you. I knew. I, yeah, I did the same exact thing, Caleb. And I'm not joking. <laughs> I jumped out of my seat and I applauded and I screamed yes as loud as I possibly could <laughs> in this auditorium where I was watching it. That was the moment for me where I was like, hashtag, he's my president. Okay. Yeah. So, but he you're was your more... president before that, Caleb. I know you didn't know that, but. <laughs> what? Oh my God. Fact. Hashtag, not my president. <laughs> so, John, you're the most passionate about deregulation of FDA. Mm-hmm. Why don't you take the conference? Why don't you take the mic? On the sure. Show? Um, I'm very happy to hear that he wants to cut the regulations. I'm I'm curious to see what specifically he's going to do with cutting what specific regulations. Once again, I want to know the specifics, but 
I am happy to hear that he's going to cut the red tape and that we're going to get down to actually approving drugs faster and not having to go through so much bullshit. Um, so basically, uh, with the Food and Drug Administration, my personal feelings on it as a government program is that they ju- they have too much power. Yeah, they're, in, they're, they're the ones who have banned things like raw milk because it's not safe. They uh, refuse to approve marijuana, uh, things like that. Well, the stores probably shouldn't be selling raw milk, John. Right. Well, raw milk, raw milk could be a debate, but if raw, if if, if raw milk is, if you have a, I mean, I'll get, I'll address this first. If raw milk is, if the rationality is that it's unhealthy, but if an individual wants to drink it, I don't see what the big deal is. People drink okay. alcohol. So what you're saying is that if a farm wants they to sell shouldn't it. they shouldn't um, ban personal consumption. Yeah, they should not ban. Per- they can say it's fine if they say, "Hey, this is not a good idea." But I don't think it's okay for them to say if someone wants to drink raw milk. There are many people that I've talked to, and many, and you can look up interviews and all kinds of stuff and articles where people have said they grew up with raw milk. And it was actually, they really enjoyed it. And there's actually, I forgot the author of the book, but uh, um, Josh is the one who has the book. It was Mm -hmm. like top 150 healthiest foods. And raw milk was actually in that book. And it was actually a pretty popular book. So there is a debate going on what the health benefits are of raw milk. We might be a little propagandized by the government as to what the health benefits are of raw milk. So we could look into that. But my point is, is that if your rationality is is that it's not healthy, then we should ban almost everything. But we, but getting to the point um, of the FDA specifically specifically with the drugs is that, um, this, to me, ties in with the patient's right to try, which is what Ted Cruz and Bernie Sanders, for example, agreed in their town hall, is that if a patient is in a situation where they need a life-saving drug and they need it now, and the FDA is taking way too long, way too long to approve that drug, that patient should have the right as an individual in a free country to take that drug. Because if their option is that drug or die... Well, I'll tell you right yeah, now, yeah. one of the most famous names on planet Earth is Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. And during his last Never years... Never heard of him. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Doesn't, doesn't he, like, own a restaurant or he something? He definitely, like, founded Microsoft, right? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, Bill Gates created Apple. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, John, get with it. No, actually, that was Steve Bannon. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so during Steve Jobs' final years, he was very sick. I forget exactly what disease he had. had Brain cancer, I think. Brain cancer. And he was desperate for a cure. He was willing to put all of his money on the line, and he went all over the world speaking the best doctors, seeking because a lot of the drugs um, that could have been worked to help with his issue weren't being approved in the United States by the FDA. So he had to go look at other federal governments. He had to go look, look at other countries. He, had, he went through every type of medicine that you could think of up to the point of witch doctors. I mean, he was so desperate and he didn't, he didn't come out alive. So he, he spent all this time trying to cure his pancreatic cancer and he was, right, he, he was, yeah, it was pancreatic cancer and he wasn't able to do it. So, I mean, that's an example that comes off the top of my mind, but that's someone who had the money and the means and the accessibility to do all of those things. The example that he brought up of this girl who had this disease that they said that she wouldn't even live to see one years old. The father had the money and the means and the accessibility to start up his own company to do his own research in, in, and have that solution solved. Everybody's like that, though. Yeah. That's, this is a clear case of the, the the FDA is a clear case of the government overstepping its bounds and doing too much to the point where they're trying to do so much that they're actually causing harm. That's right. Citizens. They're trying to do so much, and I'm not saying destroy the FDA. They actually they're they're good intention. They're well intended uh, organization that is trying to protect us, but it's trying to protect us so much ends up hurting us. It's like, I'll give you a perfect example. It's like an overprotective parent who shelters their kid from everything, from everything. They can't go out with their friends. They can't have soda. They can't have 
anything. And they smother them and they protect them to the point where when they leave for school, they go nuts. Mm -hmm. Because if you as a parent, you got to give everything in moderation. And same thing with regulation. Everything in moderation. You got to know where to overstep your boundaries. Okay? Where, where your boundaries are and where your boundaries aren't. It's not bad thing for a parent to say to their 16-year-old kid at the barbecue, hey, you want to try a beer? Not a bad thing. It is a bad thing to say what to, to, a, to a kid at a barbecue with a family gathering where everybody else is having soda. You can't have any soda. That's bad for you. That's terrible. And some parents do that. And it drives them insane. And they're ready to leave. And it smothers them to the point where when they leave, they just go crazy. And the same thing with the I've FDA. Seen it happen a lot. You've seen it happen. I've seen it happen too. Mm -hmm. I saw it when I was an RA at a college institution at a, a, a building that was partnered with the college. I saw the kids who party the hardest, and the kids who party the hardest weren't the ones who were more free in school in high school. They were the ones who were restrained. And it's their first time getting away from <laughs> it's home. It's their first time getting away from home. So the FDA is an overprotective parent, mm -hmm. and they are hurting the American it's people. It's a good way to describe it. So that's the last thing I can think of to talk about in regards to the speech. I do want to talk about the reaction to the speech by some very uh, prominent names in uh, mainstream media. But is there any last thoughts that you want to say about the speech? Um, overall, I thought he executed the speech well. Um, there are some positives, and I definitely have some uh, serious concerns about what he plans to implement with certain policies. And so I guess we'll... Uh, See what continues to happen in our country. Great. Um, I Like I said before, I wasn't a big fan of him. This was one of his better speeches. I think what really made it better for me was when he did talk about that man that died in, in service. But the one thing I just want to point out now, did anybody else think Melania Trump just looked so damn miserable in the beginning? I was joking to <laughs> the person next to me, and I said, if you look real closely, she's blinking in Morse code, save me. <laughs> no, she just d didn't look very happy. Maybe it's just her face, but... She's a she's a beautiful woman, but maybe was, that's was, maybe that's know. how that maybe that's how they show happiness in her culture. Maybe maybe. maybe. <laughs> where, I, this is a little off topic, but where is she from? I'd have to do a Google search of that, and I'll do that while we watch the video. So you guys stick back for a second, and I'll be back in a second. He became president of the United States in that moment. Period. There are a lot of people who have a lot of reason to be frustrated with him, to be fearful of him, to be mad at him. But that was one of the most extraordinary moments you have ever seen in American politics, period. And he did something extraordinary. And for people who have been hoping that he would become unifying, hoping that he might find some way to become presidential, they should be happy with that moment. She's talking to her husband, her lost husband, and uh, I, I, I just think I have no, no, nothing more to say than the, than the power of that moment. There she is, a, a regular per, per woman who's lost her spouse. And I thought the powerful political moment, and I was watching it all, and I watched when the Democrats did get up too, and, and even Tim Ryan, the VP nominee of the Democratic Party. I think this line of economic nationalism works. I think left, right, and center, I think people have a, a sense of righteous indignation, right or wrong, that we have been screwed worldwide. We must restart the engine of the American economy, make it easier for companies to do business in the United States and much harder for companies to leave. I thought that was a winner politically. I think that's probably the reason he was elected in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. It is his winning ticket, economic nationalism. Can I tell you, yesterday's speech and today's reaction is probably one of the scariest things I have ever seen. Not because of what Donald Trump said, but because of how the people reacted to what Donald Trump said. Like, the guy doesn't have to change anything. It's so crazy to see how many people are willing to accept heinous acts if you just dress it up in a nice, formal way. That's all you have to do. That's all you have to do. Like, I promise you now, Trump could have the same policies on Muslims. Trump could have the same policies on immigrants. Trump could have the same policies, do the same things. But if he just said it in a very nice way, and talked about goodness and friendship. Then people are like, I think he's presidential. 
we're just about finished up, but um, before we go, we're going to talk a little bit about um, some reactions of Donald Trump's uh, address to Congress. That's right. That's right. So the first one that we showed you was Van Jones from CNN. He is very far to the left, but this is how you know it was a good speech. Even he acknowledged that it was a good speech. Mm -hmm. He said it was a very good move politically when he had Ryan Owens' wife come up there. I think her name is Sharon Owens. And she, it might not be Sharon, but Ryan Owens' wife. And he had, he thanked her and he thanked him for his service. It was a very good move. And Van Jones agreed to that. Chris Wallace um, from Fox News agreed to that. MSNBC's Chris Matthews agreed to that. He called it a winner politically. So all along the spectrum, everybody was in agreement with it. The only person that wasn't agreeing with it was Trevor Noah, and I tend to really like Trevor's work, but I really think, as I said earlier in the show, that he just doesn't understand the purpose of the speech, which is to present your views in a positive way. And everybody in agreement is that he was very positive, he was very well-dressed, he was very sharp. First of all, I would love to buy one of those ties that Trump was wearing, the nice silk blue with the white stripes. I really, I looked at the president of my organization, I looked right next to him, and he's really into ties. And I said, I want that tie. And he's like, it's a nice tie. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, Trump was very well established in the speech and yeah, that's all I have left to say about it. John, do you have anything you have to say about the media reaction to it or any final thoughts on the speech? Um, yeah, I would say it was interesting to see the, the right and the left, uh, political analysts on news, uh, news media outlets just reacting in that way, coming mm -hmm. to, coming to an agreement because a lot of the time they don't. Mm -hmm. So, um, it was interesting to see that. Um, like I said before, uh, I think he executed the speech very well. Um, I thought he, I thought he focused on some really important issues that we as a society care about. So yeah, that's all I have left to say really. All right. Great. Thank you all so much for listening and thank tune you. in. Thank you, Hannah, for coming on the podcast. Oh, oh my goodness. Yes, I almost forgot to say I said yes. it in the last one. I forgot to say it this time. <laughs> Thank you so much, Hannah, for coming on the podcast. Yes. You provided amazing commentary. You did a really good job cutting us back into the program. Absolutely. And we hope to have you on more often. Well, I would love to be on more often. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, well, uh, thank you, everybody at home or in the car or wherever you may be for listening. And this has been the JCS Podcast. Peace. <laughs>